The folks in the back keep telling me, don't stand here because it's dark. It's light here. But a number of people said, no, that's okay. With your face, stand there. So I'm going to try to make everybody happy. Um, we were looking through pictures on staff the other day, and there was a picture of me about 15 years ago. And some, no, I was in the elder board, and one of the elders says, whoa, Andy, I've aged a little. You aren't easy for what it's worth. I've aged, all right? You know, credibility is a major issue in life. Uh, we spend a lot of our time in life trying to figure out who's credible. Um, much of the struggle that we have politically is we struggle with who we can trust, who's credible, which media uh, address has credibility, which politician has credibility. For my generation, Watergate was a watershed event. The Vietnam War and evidence of lies from the administration, those things created huge credibility issues with our government. And, and so my generation got stoned. But the, <laughs> not all of us, but but the credibility was a major issue, and it's an issue in other areas. When I was in seminary, I'll never forget, I was writing a paper for our own Harold Honer, who attended here for 100 years, multiple doctorates, brilliant man, and I read two commentaries on a passage of Scripture, and, and they were by credible commentators, which is not your run-of-the-mill tater, it's a commentator. And I was reading that, and come on, guys, and... and one of them said this about a passage, and the other said the polar opposite. And they're both supposed to be great authors. And you think, well, someone's wrong here, right? And so you have to make a decision. Who's credible? Who's using real evidence? Who's done his homework? And who's relying on wives' tales? Um, and, and we spend our lives learning who's credible because credibility determines who we'll trust. And all of us have had the disappointment of entrusting ourselves to someone and finding out that they weren't worthy of that trust. They weren't credible. We're going to look at a passage today that talks about credibility. Now, on the surface, Luke chapter 7 seems to be about a bunch of Jesus' miracles, and it certainly is. But the miracles aren't the primary emphasis of the passage. The primary emphasis of the passage is the credibility of those who receive the miracle, that respond to the miracle. And, and so it's more a commentation, uh, a suggestion about who we are than it is about who Jesus is. It, it assumes that we'll understand that Jesus is the Son of God because he's doing all these crazy miracles. The question is, who responds to him and how? So if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 7 as we go through this first section in Luke in big bites. I'm going to read a lot. We've got to go fast. I didn't finish on time first service, and it was a disaster. People left. They can never come back. None of that's true. Well, I didn't finish on time. That part's true. Luke chapter 7, the response of faith. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he noticed to the people who were listening. Um, he had the same problem I do. He entered Capernaum, and there a centurion servant who was a master valued high, whose master valued highly was sick and about to die. And the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them, and he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself. You don't deserve to have you. We don't deserve to have you under our roof. This is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. 
But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. And I say to the servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turned to the crowd following him and said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house, and they found the servant well. Jesus is, has been teaching, and this, uh, this centurion sends Jewish elders to him. Now, a centurion was uh, over 100 Roman soldiers, and, and as such, he was one of the most powerful men of the occupying force. It was not unusual for them to make 7,500 denarii a year, whereas the average soldier made 100 denarii a day, 300. So they were, they were powerful, they were relatively affluent, and they had huge, significant impact in the world. According to outside sources, uh, in Galilee, none of the centurions were Roman until A.D. 44. So this is a centurion who is, is most likely a, a, a Goyim, a Gentile, excuse me. And, and as a Gentile, he would not have naturally fitted into the Israel, the people of the Jews, but, but he did because he loved them. And the text says that the leaders of the synagogue come to him and say, Lord, he wants you to heal his servant, and he deserves you to do this. Why? Because he supports us, and he built our synagogue. He deserves it because of what he's done for us. And Jesus begins to follow him, and he gets near the town. The centurion sends someone else out, and they say, you know, Jesus, you don't even need to bother to come because I don't deserve it. And there's a very intentional contrast. The Jewish leader said he does deserve it, but he knows himself and says, I don't even deserve you in my home. Isn't that interesting? And he says, because you have authority. And I've got authority over my men. I tell them what to do and they do it. So you just, just tell my servant to get well and he'll get well. And Jesus says what? I have never seen faith like this in Israel. Notice that the mood has changed from talking about the grandness of the miracle to the response of the recipient. What marks this man's faith? Two things. First of all, he believes that Jesus can do it from a distance. He can just use his word and, and will heal the servant who's apparently going to die. But secondly, it is a faith imbued with unbelievable humility. A centurion could walk through Jerusalem and the ways parted because he was powerful. He had a hundred of the Roman legion behind him and their power was remarkable. And yet he comes to Jesus and said, I don't even deserve you in my house. Just please, just please do this. And, and Jesus, I believe in that statement about his faith is indicating that what's significant is not just the greatness of his faith, but the kind of faith it is. Remember Jesus saying that it, it, oh, you only need the faith of a mustard seed? Have you ever tried to weigh your faith? It's a hard thing to do. Uh, what is he saying? It's not about how much faith it is. It's about who your faith is in. And, and here he's not talking about the amount of faith, but the quality of that faith. And what is that faith? It is a humble faith. Why is humility important to faith? Well, it's important because humility understands that I trust God on his terms. In other words, if there's no humility, I really don't need him. 
If there's no humility, I don't need forgiveness. If there's no humility, I can divine salvation for myself. And we live in a culture that does that. Everywhere you turn, whatever celebrity you're reading or hearing, whatever person in the paper, everybody's saying, this is how I'm going to get to heaven. I have decided. There's an absence of, of humility there. But it says to God, I'll let you know how I gain your approval. But this is a faith that is, that is characterized by a submission to his will because it says, I can only come to you on your terms because you're God and I'm not. So, so in our culture today, you'll hear people talking about faith all the time, but it's, not, it's faith on their own terms, not God's terms. And this centurion is a man who understands that faith is always on God's terms. He is the object of our faith. And Jesus said, in front of all these Jewish people, never seen anything like this. But the story continues. Verse 11. Uh, soon afterward, Jesus went into a town called Nain. Nain is six miles southeast of Nazareth. 20 miles from Capernaum. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him, and he approached the town gate. A dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. And he went up and touched the bier that, where the, they were carrying on him, carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And they were all filled with awe and praised God. And a great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. So this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Now, Jesus goes some trek, 20 miles, a later point, and he goes to the little town of Nain. Uh, if it's where we think it is, there are only 200 people living there now. And there was a funeral procession, and they, they wrapped the body in cloth and would carry it on a plank or a pier and, 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 and because they, they couldn't let the body wait because of decomposition. They buried them immediately after death. And Jesus, uncharacteristically, doesn't wait for anyone to come to him to ask. And said, he sees the brokenness of this woman. She is a widow, and this is her only son. In their society, that means she's out of luck. There, there is no social services. There, there's no means for financial support in ancient world apart from the family. They valued the family, and the family stood with them, something that we talk about but don't always do. And so, and so with losing her husband and her son, she was not only grieving the loss of her son, but she was walking and saying to herself, what will I do? Will I be a beggar? Will I have a home? And Jesus, seeing the brokenness of her heart, goes and touches the body, and the men carrying it stop, and he raises the son from the dead, which where I come from is a class A miracle. Not your run-of-the-mill miracle. This is a class A miracle. And what do the people say? I think he's a prophet. Now, when we read that, we may miss the significance of it. Uh, uh, Elijah and Elisha, the two great prophets of the nation of Israel, 
Elisha's name is, is rooted in the same verb as Jesus' name. There's a huge connection there. Elijah is represented by John the Baptist. Jesus' name is like Elisha, Yeshua, and so he is the fulfillment of Christ. These two great prophets that pointed to the Messianic era had both raised young men from the dead, and they're making the connection. Wait a minute. Is he the prophet? They may even been alluding to Deuteronomy 18 where God says to Moses, I will raise up one prophet who will tell the people my words. And many believe that that prophet of Deuteronomy 18 was a statement of the prophetic role of the Messiah, the Christ, the King. And so I believe that when they say we think he's a prophet, they're just not using a word carelessly. They're saying we may be talking about the guy who's finally going to do all the things we've looked to God to do. And that's why word about him got to everywhere, all of Israel, because all of Israel was waiting for that prophet to come. All of Israel was yearning for that one. And so you, again, notice the emphasis on the recipients. They, they see what he does, and, and they connect him to the Old Testament truths and prophecies and realities. They said, he may be the one. This woman without hope suddenly has hope because her son is raised from the dead. Verse 16, they were all filled with all. A prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. It's finally there. In verse 18 through 23, we have reasonable questions, which says a lot about this nature of faith. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent to us to ask, are you the one who is to come or we should, should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of time. Now, this is interesting because if the passage is about how we respond to Jesus, this is awkward because the great prophet, the one that fulfills the messenger role of John, has doubts. Does that bother you? Does it bother you when you have doubts? The reality is, Luke wants us to know that real faith still is a struggle. Real faith still has its moments of struggle because it's in our struggle that our faith grows and matures. The simple faith of a child is wonderful. It is breathtaking. It is beautiful. It is elegant. It is profound. But it's simple faith. The problem with simple faith is it's not complicated by the realities of life. But as you grow as a believer, you, you run into, you encounter those circumstances that your simple faith didn't anticipate. You bury someone upon whom you depended and loved. You have a, a, a disease that could end your life or be crippling. Your heart is broken by someone to whom you had entrusted yourself or someone you believed in. Other Christians turn their backs on. There, there are so many ways 
that our faith can be shaken. And when our faith is shaken, we often struggle with doubt. And all too often when that happens, we panic and say, because I'm struggling, it must not be true. But we would be better off to pray as the man did in Mark. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. The reality is that faith is always a struggle, and it's in that struggle of faith that it matures and it strengthens. It's, it's because of the struggles you've overcome by continuing to depend in the midst of the struggles that you've learned just how much you can rely on Him. That's why older believers have a calmness in their faith that we younger believe. Well, I'm not younger anymore. You younger believers may struggle with because they've, they've struggled through it time and time and time again. And Luke wants us to see, here's John the baptizer. He's the greatest prophet of all time. And he says, are you sure, Lord? This is the guy that said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now he says, are you sure? Why did he do that? Because he's in prison. He's saying, Lord, this isn't how the script was supposed to be written. You were supposed to be the messianic king, bring great freedom and power to Israel, and here I'm in prison, and I'm about to get my head cut off, and that doesn't feel like the abundant life I was hoping for. Because faith often is a struggle. Years and years ago when I was making an honest living, I was teaching a Sunday school class here, and and. I'll never forget it. One of the families that I dearly love and respect raised their hands and said it was supposed to, it was called Families in the 80s. We changed the name about 95, but it was, it was a class designed to talk about family issues. And one of the parents raised their hand and said, my son has doubts. I sent him to a Christian school, and yet he's told me he has doubts about Jesus. And I said, so what's the problem? She said, well, he has doubts. I said, well, do you have doubts? Well, yeah, but what do you mean, yeah, but? The reality is, uh, it's normal to struggle through faith and have doubts. There's nothing in life I don't doubt at one time or another. Because as, as we encounter new tests of our faith, we learn to trust in new ways, and it strengthens us. And so we don't need to panic when there are doubts. We just need to seek God. Read the Psalms. I love the Psalms. That's, the Psalms are historically part of Christian worship. That's why we read one before the prayer every year, every week. It's because that's historically what the church has done. When you read the Psalms, you'll see that oftentimes David and the other psalmists would start out by saying, Lord, you're messing up. I don't like this. What's the matter? with you? Why are the bad guys winning? He says all the things we're afraid to say. In fact, sometimes you'll read it and say, that's that in the book of Song of Solomon. You say, was that supposed to be in the Bible? But, but you read it and realize that he's so honest. He, he says things that oftentimes we struggle to say because that's what, that's what real faith struggles to do. What is interesting about the Psalms is not where they begin, it's where they always end. Because after they struggled through it, they end up back trusting God and affirming their faith. The Old Testament story that's meant so much to me is when Jacob wrestled the angel of God when he was given the name um, Israel. You remember they're, they're wrestling or wrestling, as you say in Texas, and it goes all night, and finally the angel touches his hip and dislocates it, and, and, and Jacob is losing the match, and he finally says, Lord, I will not go until you let go until you bless me. And in my struggles of faith, there, in the middle of the night, there have been more times than I can count where I've said in my prayers, Lord, I won't let go until you bless me. 
We will together wrestle this out, and I will trust you. And it's not necessarily a good night's sleep, but it's an incredible place to end in Christ when, when in that prayer he meets you again and you take a next step in dependence upon him. So as this passage emphasizes not so much the miracles as the response to the miracles, here he takes the most elevated man in history at that time besides Jesus, and he shows us a glimpse of his struggle with faith. And Jesus responds and says, what all has happened? Well, the blind are seeing, the poor have been preached the gospel, the dead are raised. All of that list are things that are prophesied in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah, of things that Messiah will do. In other words, Jesus says, Read Isaiah. Some of the stuff you want isn't happening right now, but this is. And John is assured. True faith still doubts. Verses 24 to 43, we see a refusal to believe. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed in the wind, a weakling? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? He wore camel hair, ate grasshoppers. No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in the palaces. Well, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, I'll tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi chapter 3, a passage about the messenger who would prepare the way for the coming king. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. How how does that work? Because the kingdom reality is so much greater than now. And all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts of the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Did you catch that? Who's credible? Not the Pharisees. Pharisees wouldn't submit to John's baptism or repentance for sins. John stood up and said, in essence, none of us deserves God's love. And the Pharisees said, well, maybe you don't. I'm good. You good? I'm good. Who did embrace Jesus? The tax collectors. And it's so often in Luke, he flips our expectations upside down. He takes the most despised and elevates them and takes the most respected and shows their lack of credibility. Because men and women, the world's credibility is not God's credibility. We used to have a member of our staff, and he was enamored with people with lots of degrees. He was talking about someone, he said, oh, they have five degrees. And I'm thinking, okay. So they can't do anything besides go to school. Now, there's nothing wrong with, I've got, I went to seminary, I've got a degree, I've got a lot of hours of graduate work and all of that stuff. But, but if you've been around academia, you know that that doesn't guarantee wisdom. And, and the reality is having degrees is just having degrees. It is not, it's, it's not enough to play, make someone credible. In fact, you can always find someone with a PhD that will say incredibly stupid things, Right? And, and, and Luke wants us to see, don't, don't trust in the guy just because he's got the expertise in titles. Trust the people based on how they respond to God's truth. 
and the tax collectors, the, mo- the traitors of the land, knew that they were sinners. So they responded to Jesus. Uh-oh, keep going. Verse 31, Jesus went to say, to what then can I compare this people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the market. I love this. They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you said, he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collector. He said, no matter what we do, you complain. If we come in brokenheartedness, then you don't weep. If we come in celebration, you don't dance. You're like a bunch of brats. In fact, Daryl Bach, my old friend and New Testament scholar, calls this the parable of the brats. You can't be pleased. Why? Because your hearts aren't open to it. It's not about the evidence. It's about where your hearts are. Verse 35, I think, is the pivot point of the passage because it gives the theme. Wisdom is proved right by all her children. It's, it's, it's who's credible that shows what's right. And those who are the children of wisdom know the truth and respond. Verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, they literally lay at the table for special banquets so that their feet were extended out away from the food. And a woman in the town who lived a very sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Catch the contrast. We have the Pharisee who does everything right. He is an expert on doing everything right. He is like the ultimate accountant and engineer. He knows all the, or lawyer, he knows all the details and all of the things that tell you how it is done, and he follows them ad nauseum. Make you crazy. He's such a perfectionist, and he does it all. And then, on the other hand, you have a woman, an outcast, a a person with no power, who, by the way, lives a life totally devoid of the pictures of righteousness of God. Most likely, she's a prostitute. Most likely, she she, uh, has rejected God in every area of her life. And who's the good one? It's about the recipient. Because she knows she needs Jesus. See, truth, faith is always characterized by that humility of need. The Pharisees don't have a need. They just don't have a need. And, and, and she, with all her messiness, is the one who will not only embrace Christ, but experience the rejuvenation, the life that he can give because, because she knows she needs it. And it's that kind of faith that the Lord is looking for. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, well, if this man was a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. And Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. 
Two people owed money to a certain money lender. lender. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will, he love, will love him more? And Simon replied, well, I guess the one that had the bigger debt forgiven. You judge rightly. Now, the irony of the passage is I'm not sure that she had more to forgive, but she knew she had a lot to forgive. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 says, um, I don't consider myself having taken hold of righteousness, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and strain on toward the prize. In other words, the, the, I think the closer we come to Christ, the more aware we are of our need for Him. The more there is a brokenness in our need for Him. And She's the one that's credible. But she'll admit the truth about herself. He knew the truth about the law. He knew the truth about Israel. He knew the truth about the temple. He knew the truth about all that stuff. What he didn't know was the truth about himself. He was an expert in everything but his own need. Because he believed the lie. He didn't need God. He couldn't create himself. He couldn't design his own body. He couldn't give himself life. He couldn't give himself any of the things he depended on life, but he was pretty doggone confident he didn't need God. Finally, repentant love, verses 44 through 50. And I'm out of time. Then he turned toward the woman. doesn't matter. I just want to acknowledge it. Uh, turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't got me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It is faith and faith alone, but it's a faith that is submissive, humble before God. We live in a society where everybody's got faith. Every celebrity, everyone you read about has got faith in something. Oh, I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm just, I'm just not religious. Well, what does that mean? Well, I, have, I, make, I just believe what I want to. I have faith. But... but it's not just the object of the faith that matters. If I have faith in a toad, a toad won't necessarily bring forgiveness of my sins, right? Because true faith has to submit to God, has to acknowledge that we need Him and has to, in humility, embrace His solution, not our own. And that's why it often is accompanied with brokenness. Because it's in breaking down our confidence in ourselves that our faith continues to grow. And the people in this passage that are elevated and treated as stars are the ones who know how desperately they need. The ones who in humility embrace him on his terms. Because listen to me. We don't get to write our own gospel. We don't get to write our own gospel. 
because we are not the king. Please pray with me. Father, forgive our pride that so characterizes so much of what we do. Help us, Lord, to depend on you, to trust in you, and to honestly and humbly seek you. In Jesus' name, amen.